This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Got a busy show today, as always. Um, I want to talk about identity politics and a theory that we may be nearing the end of it which would be good news, but how can this be? So we'll talk about that. we got a little more insight in how people not only form opinions, because that's what we've been exploring these last few weeks, how people come to, come to their opinions, but also how people make up their own realities. I had a caller on my local show the other day say, you know, Slater, it's like, it's like Democrats, Republicans, progressives, conservatives, we don't even agree on core principles anymore. And I'm sure you've thought that, heard that before. And I, and I got thinking, you know, Yes, but we don't even agree on reality anymore. Forget, forget about core principles. So you have policy. Of course, we don't agree on policy. But we you know, used to maybe agree on principles. Now we don't agree on that. But we don't even agree on reality. So, if I mean, that's the starting point. We, we can't even agree on that. So I want to break that down uh, a little bit more. And, and the conclusion of that is going to be, well, it's all the more reason for us to focus on what is real and what is true. So we'll talk about that later. Uh, also, I have a dose of reality about Trump's upcoming immigration policy. So we will do all of those throughout the next three hours here. But I want to start off with uh, Milo. Now, before you go change in the station, you're like, oh, my gosh, more of this guy. Uh, it's not what I want to say here is not really about Milo. Milo is just a, uh, an excuse to talk about these things. I don't know how much background you need on him. I'm, I think we're all pretty up to, uh, up to date on, on his thing. Uh, gay British conservative. I I've been fascinated by his act for maybe a year now. Uh, he's definitely got a shtick. He tours college campuses, says mostly true things. But when the left, and of course it's the way he delivers it, but but the things he says is uh, are pretty much true. So, but the thing is, when he's called a homophobe, right? If you said the same things, you'd be called a homophobe. But he says, "I'm gay," and when college snowflakes call him a racist, he says, "I have a black boyfriend," and right, he just goes on and on. So he has these shields against every progressive attack that would normally shut down the debate. So 
that's fascinating. And then I'm just wondering, like, how did he get so famous? Where did this come from? How did he get a $250,000 book deal? How did he get thrown off Twitter? And it's like, what? what? He, he is the provocateur du jour. And uh, at the Republican National Convention, you know, we're sitting there on Radio Row doing our local show, and the governor of Florida would walk by, and he'd have an aide next to him, and that's it. Maybe there'd be someone talking to him as he walked by, like, oh, there's the governor of Florida. And that was pretty much the case for everyone, but Milo would walk by, and there'd be 50 people around him. It'd be like a circus. People flashing cameras. Milo, Milo, who's that? Who's that? Is that Milo? Milo, Milo, who's Milo? Like the whole thing. He was the star of the whole Radio Row experience. And it's like, who is this guy? How did this happen? And then one last point on on the shtick. He would do this uh, drag queen-esque show on college campuses, sometimes literally dressing in drag. And, you know, sometimes his speech would get shut down, and that's what he would want. And then he'd get invited on Fox News. And then when he would do that, he would, well, dye his hair back to brown, get in a suit and tie, and play it straight. Which proves that the whole thing's an act. And just to kind of get on TV. And And then when he's on TV, he's smart. He's a smart person. Well, at least he uses big words with a British accent. (laughs) That's kind of at least passes by, comes across as smart. If you're just uh, tuning in. So anyway, that's Milo. He's got a huge cult following online, all that. So you know the whole backstory. He said some things online that basically support uh, pedophilia. Um, Went into this whole thing about consent and relationships between men and younger boys and provide safety and love and blah, blah, blah. And then he got disinvited from CPAC. Breitbart fired him. Lost his book deal, right? So so what we have here is, is a meteoric rise. This is the big principle here. This is the story arc of of Milo that we witnessed this week. We have the meteoric rise of Milo and then the hubristic epic fall. And that is a story as old as time. The meteoric rise and then the collapse. And the person who this is this act, Milo Yiannopoulos, is a really wounded, hurt person. His name is Milo Hanrahan. And he did an interview two years ago at Fusion. And he said, I quote, I didn't like me very much. So I created this comedy character. I don't have feelings to hurt. Right? So that's why he says things that hurt people's feelings. Right? He, he doesn't have feelings to hurt, so he projects that on uh, on others. right? So he's got a lot of wounds, so he created this character, and, and it's, he admits that it's, it's all an act um, that he's created. So that that's the story of Milo, and I think that is really interesting. So all that being said, I want to tell you where I am. I was doing a Bible study about, about a year and a half ago with a couple of friends, and it was entitled Excavation. And it was specifically for men in their mid, mid-20s to 30s because men in their 30s, especially in our, our social media world today, it looks like everyone's building skyscrapers all around you. Their careers, their families, everyone's making more money now and loving life and everything's awesome and amazing and look at these trips I'm going on and all that stuff. And all you see are people building these skyscrapers around you. And you're not. You you have like this little hut or whatever. 
let's just focus on careers, right? So people in your 30s, it's not your first gig. You got a couple of promotions and all that. And people are starting to do pretty impressive things. So you look at that and you can start to feel inadequate. You feel like you're falling behind. And you got to keep up with the Joneses when it comes to your career. And you're not, so you get depressed and all that. So the point of this study is instead of building your skyscraper and rushing to build it so it can keep up with everyone else's, instead of building, excavate. Excavate deep down. Excavate down in your life so that then you can build a rock-solid foundation that you can build your skyscraper on in your 40s and beyond because these other skyscrapers that are being built right now, they don't have that solid foundation and they're going to collapse one way or the other eventually. So I look at Milo. I think we're the same age. I think he's 32. And he built a skyscraper on an unstable foundation. Actually, when did I first meet Glenn? Eight years ago? Seven, eight years ago? And I asked him, I said, Glenn, what's your, uh, what's your advice? Young radio guy, what's your advice? Immediately, avoid self-destructive behavior. That was, it. That was his advice. <laughs> it wasn't anything about radio specifically. It wasn't about your voice, your, vo- your, voice, your tone, your tenor, show prep. <laughs> avoid self-destructive behavior. Same idea, right? So Milo built a skyscraper on unstable foundation. And you, especially if you're older, uh, you've lived this yourself or you've seen it around you. People who just work, 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 build, build, build. And maybe they neglect their family. They neglect their own issues. They neglect important things and then it all collapses. Maybe they still have their career, but they lost their family or whatever it is. And these guys I do this Bible study with, they're super accomplished, incredibly wildly accomplished in the military just like crazy crazy things and we've just been encouraging each other to slow down in a society this is rush 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 go 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 build 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 we've been trying to say prepare 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 excavate dig 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 heal some wounds figure out what you really want to do what your true calling is don't rush wait slow down so I'll just be, I'll admit it. Like I would look at Milo and be like, man, why don't I have a $250,000 book deal? <laughs> you know what I mean? Why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? Why don't I, why aren't I speaking at CPAC? Why aren't I on the Bill Marshall? Or whatever? It's like, whoa, it's okay. Slow down. Do you want, do you want those things? Do you want a book now? Or would you wait, rather wait until it's going to be a good one, right? Do you want to, do you even want to go on the Bill Marshall? But let's say you did. Um, are you ready? Are you prepared for that? Are, are, do you have the wisdom necessary to do a good job? Uh, and, and speak the message uh, in, a, in a productive, capable way. Like, you ready for that? Like, just wait, wait, slow down. Don't rush, don't rush. Luke 14 is one of my favorite stories. Uh, Jesus gives the advice to take the lowest seat at the table. I love this story. He says, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't just waltz on in and take the highest seat of honor, right? Don't take the best seat because then the, the guy who's hosting the wedding is going to come in and be like, hey, uh, Sorry, bro. Um, Do you mind moving down a couple seats? (laughs) Sorry. And you'll be super humiliated because you thought you were the man. But instead, sit at the lowest seat at the table. 
And then the host is going to say, hey, man, what are you doing down there? Come on, move up here, move up to a better place. And, and that will bring you honor. And the conclusion is for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the challenge has been issued uh, to me amongst my friends to humble yourself, excavate, prepare. There are no shortcuts. We always look for shortcuts. We look for shortcuts to success. They don't exist. They don't exist. And let every tale of, of hubris, let every tale of pride before the fall be the lesson. one 900 And I think that's, that's really at the core, I think, what this story is about. I want to share a story next of three gentlemen. We're going to go ancient Greece. I'll just tell you, Shakespeare, and then Civil War hero. These three gentlemen tied together, not just in theme, but specifically connected to each other. All with this lesson that I just shared right here. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I want to tell three stories in one along this point about uh, about excavating. So, Isocrates, not not Socrates, Isocrates, uh, 734 BC. So he was friends with another man who passed away, and uh, that that man had a a younger son. So Isocrates wrote a note to uh, this young young boy who was very ambitious. And Isocrates knew that ambition can be very dangerous. So in the advice, uh, I'll just read a couple points. He said, uh, no adornment so becomes you. So nothing's as important as modesty, justice, and self-control. For these are the virtues by which the character of young of the young is held in restraint. Uh, th- this is the line I like. Though. Abhor flatterers as you would deceivers. Right, so the people who f- offer you flattery, run from them as quickly as you run from people who deceive you. Abhor flatterers as you would deceivers. I like this. Be slow in deliberation, but be prompt to carry out your resolves. 
Okay, so just a, a list of advice like this. That's so 734 BC. So fast forward about 2,000 years. You got Shakespeare, wrote Hamlet, took this letter, specifically this letter. This isn't a coincidence. Took this letter from Isocrates and put it in Hamlet. So the dad, Polonius, wrote a letter to his son uh, and the famous line you may have heard. This above all, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the day, the night, thou cannot then be false to any man. So basically it just means... Um, be a man of integrity and character. And it's after a long list of advice, just like this letter from Isocrates. All right, fast forward 250 more years to William Tecumseh Sherman, Civil War general. His favorite play was Hamlet. He quoted it all the time. Again, not a coincidence. I'm not saying, oh, here are three people throughout history who kind of came to the same conclusion. No, Isocrates, Shakespeare, Tecumseh Sherman loved Hamlet. Shakespeare read Isocrates, right? There's a direct connection between these three men. Now, Tecumseh Sherman, his dad passed away when he was young as well, just like Isocrates' friend, right? His parents named him Tecumseh, but his mom, I think, had seven kids, and the dad wasn't there anymore, so the mom had to give a bunch of the kids away. So she gave Tecumseh to the neighbors who were Catholic, so they gave him the name William, so it's William Tecumseh Sherman. So... I bring him up because you look at people in history and Milo is an example of this, who just burst into the scene out of nowhere and then disappeared just as quickly. But Sherman's ascent was very slow. He he went to West Point, was in the army, traveled across the United States on horseback, learning a little bit from each posting that he went to. He was never in a rush, didn't have grand ambitions, wasn't, and because he didn't do that, he wasn't, He had no desire to trample on people to get anywhere because he was just learning. He was just excavating. Civil War started. Uh, He was promoted a couple times. He met with President Lincoln at one point and the president offered him a promotion. And he said, I'll accept it under one condition. No more promotions. And the president was taken back because every other general All they wanted were promotions, right? They just wanted higher rank all the time. And he was the only one who asked for no more rank, right? He's just, he's like, this is it. It's all, (laughs) I don't want to go any higher. Why? It's weird. Even when I tell the story today, it's like, was he afraid of something? Was he scared? Was he lazy? Why, why would he not want more rank? What are you talking about? Of course, what would ever compel him? Why was he so scared? Why was he a coward? No, it's because he had an honest appreciation of his abilities and he, he, he knew what role was best for him in the war. So the siege of Fort Donelson, he was actually ranked higher than Ulysses S. Grant, but he waived it and served alongside uh, in, in support of Grant. He wasn't fighting for control with him. I guess it's the old adage, you know, great things can happen when you don't care who gets the credit. It's kind of like that. So he kept learning because he really admired Ulysses S. Grant, even though Grant had a lower rank. So he kept learning, kept growing. Ultimately, by the end of the war, became one of the most famous men in America. He was asked to run for president and do everything. And of course, he said no to even running for president. Grant, though, did run, obviously won. So Sherman wrote to Grant. Again, always admired him, but he wrote to Grant and he gave a piece of advice. He said, be natural and yourself. Now, hold on. There's one more line, but I just want to go back to Isocrates. Remember, Isocrates told the young boy, abhor flatterers as you would deceivers. And Sherman wrote to Grant, be natural in yourself 
and this glittering flattery will be as the passing breeze of the sea on a warm summer day. Meaning it's not going to last. And that's okay. Be natural on yourself. And this glittering flattery, all these accolades, all this, it'll be as the passing breeze of the sea on a warm summer day. It'll, it'll come and it'll go. And be okay with that. Just be natural and be yourself. I want to quote from Ryan Holiday, who wrote a great book. He's one of the great young writers of today. He wrote a book called Ego is the Enemy. It's, it's awesome. You should read it. He said, if your belief in yourself is not dependent on actual achievement, then what is it dependent on? The answer is nothing. Ego. And this is why we so often see precipitous rises followed by calamitous falls. So which type of person will you be? Isn't that interesting? So you look at people who have these these quick rises to fame. Um, is there real achievement there? Is it really based on anything real? If not, then uh, it's based on nothing. And then it will end in a calamitous fall. It's so funny. We're attracted to big, glamorous, powerful cults of personalities. It's interesting. Because it's the, it's the meek, it's the humble, it's the generous, the gracious that, uh, well, shall inherit the earth. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Just, um, I don't know, something to think about. The, the, especially for a younger generation. I don't know if this applies even to, or I don't know if older people even have the, uh, older people quote, have the, uh, this like desire to go, go, rush, 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 rush. But if you're in your 20s, 30s, and I know the Blaze has a younger audience, just be patient, slow down, focus on achievement, not on ambition. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Chef. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. One more uh, segment on Milo, then we'll move on to some uh, some other things, a little more uh, political based things. But talking about Milo and, and not really about him, it's it's the rise and fall of him. It's just fascinating. I've been able to, as uh, you know, watching him for about a year, fascinated by his by his act, by his shtick, and by what he does and how he does it, and sort of watching it. And then what happened last week, to the rise, the fall. Now he, in his apology. Uh, didn't, he could have done two things. He could have doubled down or humbled out. Um, he doubled down on it all. So he'll rise and then fall again. He'll just keep doing that over and over until the, the humility comes. But, um, we quoted, I think on this show two weeks ago, Ryan holiday. I had no idea when I first quoted him, how impressive he is. He dropped out of college, Ryan holiday. He dropped out of college when he was 19 apprenticed under Robert Greene. Robert Greene wrote uh, 48 Laws of Power. If you don't have that book, um, I, I recommend it. It's a very difficult read, 48 Laws of Power. But this is a, it's one of Donald Trump's favorite books, and it's the number one book that's banned in prisons. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it's 
pretty interesting. And Trump used a lot of these laws of power uh, in, in his uh, campaign. We've quoted that a bunch as well. So anyway, Ryan Green apprenticed with this guy. And he's written a bunch of books that my friends have read. And I'd never put it all together that it's all the same Ryan Holiday. Anyway, he wrote an article. We quoted him a couple weeks ago. It was right after uh, the, the Berkeley protests with Milo. And his article was full of wisdom because he he has so much historical context, Ryan Holiday does, that he doesn't get wrapped up in things. Right? He doesn't get swept away by movements or fads or anything like that because he's a student of history and he knows that there's nothing new under the sun. So he also can kind of always take a 30,000 foot view of everything and just sort of stay above it. And I, and I, I admire that. So he was giving some advice to progressives on how to combat people like Milo. And it's not to shut them down. It's not to burn down the campus that they're speaking on. It's to talk with them. And he goes on and he talks about a couple other people who have had these meteoric rises and ran through all the different times that people have tried to shut them down, but that just makes them stronger. And then the, the times when they really get shut down, quote unquote, is when a progressive just talks to them, just talks, and, and that exposes, uh, what does it expose? It's, it exposes... Um, just they're not quite ready yet and and that's not a bad thing it's not it's not bad they're just not quite all the way there and that's okay i i guess i just say watch out for shortcuts i feel like a lot of people who get attention quickly are not ready for it because they took the shortcuts either they looked for the shortcuts on their own or they were given shortcuts and they didn't have the awareness like william tecumseh sherman did to not take them. Does that make sense? The, the, that difference? So some people, they're like, where's the shortcut? How can I get to the top right now? They're looking for it. Some people are just doing their thing and then someone gives them a shortcut and they're like, okay, I guess once in a lifetime and they take it and they're not ready for it. But William, William Tecumseh Sherman, remember Lincoln was like, hey, take, take, this, uh, take this job and Sherman's like, well, I'll do it, but no more. Like, <laughs> I don't want any more rises to the top. I'm not ready. And that is, uh, that's true wisdom. So, I want to give a couple uh, examples of this. So Yvonne Chouinard, he is the founder of Patagonia, you know, the, the clothing company. And he's a baller mountain climber and an adventurer. And he was talking about climbing Mount Everest and how that has changed over the decades since uh, the first people to do it. Now, I want to read this quote here. Now, I'm going to change a word to the word jerk just because it's a family show. So... When I say the word jerk, just know that the word he used is about two steps worse than this, but I think jerk still gets the point across. So he says, taking a trip for six months, you get in the rhythm of it. It feels like you can go on forever doing that. Climbing Everest is the ultimate and the opposite of that because you get these high-powered plastic surgeons and CEOs and they pay $80,000 and have Sherpas put the ladders in place and 8,000 feet of fixed ropes and you get to the camp and you don't even have to lay out your sleeping bag. It's already laid out with a chocolate mint on the top. The whole purpose of planning something like Everest is to affect some sort of, of spiritual and physical gain. And if you compromise the process, you're a jerk when you start out 
and you're a jerk when you get back. Right? So, so the whole point of climbing Mount Everest is to dive into it with with everything in your, your soul, your spirit, your body, everything. And it changes you. Right? You start off one part way and then you do this for months and then you don't barely make it and you almost die and you come back and you're a different person. But today you can pay 80 grand. You have Sherpas do all the work. You get your everything laid out for you. You get to the top, you come back and nothing changed because you didn't really invest anything into it. Why? You compromised the process. Now that's the process of Mount Everest, but what about this? The process of our, our life. Don't take the shortcut. I mean, you can take the shortcut. Have the Sherpas do everything for you. You could take an escalator to the top of Everest. But that defeats the whole purpose of climbing it. There's no point. Like The point of Everest isn't to get to the top of Everest. You can just have a helicopter take you to the top. Like, who cares? It's the process, and there's no shortcut in that. So I know I don't want to beat this dead horse here, but the lesson of Milo, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a rise and fall. And there's so many in history. And I think most of the people who do that, they attempt to shortcut, shortcut the process. So when they take the shortcut, what do they skip over? Character. All right, they skip over the character development part because that's everything. You can have all the wisdom in the world, but if you have no character, then uh, it doesn't matter. This is why Abraham Lincoln said, and this is one of my all-time favorite quotes. He said, nearly all men can stand adversity. Uh, let me stop here. I love that opening because, I don't know, I feel like in today, well, in today's culture, it's you're a victim and celebrate that and tell everyone what a victim you are and whatever. Recently in American history, it's, try to you know, stand up to adversity like you can do it come on you can do it that's important like that's the highest ideal is to stand up to adversity and here's lincoln being like well i mean whatever <laughs> i mean nearly all men can stand up to adversity a big deal which i find really fascinating right again culture more or less in america is like come on like as if that's the hardest thing to stand up to adversity and we think you can try hard to stand and lincoln's like well I mean, nearly everyone can do that but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And I would add to that fame. If you want to know someone's character, give them power, give them fame. Because with those two things, your lack of character will be exposed very quickly. Heraclitus, Greek philosopher, he said, character is fate. Character is fate because you write your own story based on your own character, whether it be your success or your demise. I know I'm throwing a lot out there. Um, let me wrap up with this. I was talking to my, uh, so I got a local show in San Diego and our afternoon host, his name's Brett Winterbull. Uh, I was talking to him about all this and he's like, you know, Slater, it's, it's about, and Glenn would agree with this. I know it's about who do we want to be? Who's the we conservative movement, right? Let's just unite on that for now. What do we want the conservative movement to be known for? What do we want it to look like? The best, one of the best pieces of advice I got from uh, a couple parents now, because we have a four and a half month old, you're like, how do we raise little Jack? And they say, imagine who you want Jack to be and then do what it takes to get there. Now, obviously life is going to throw a million curveballs, all that, of course, but, and, and it's not even like, well, I want him to be a football player. It's not that it's who, like, who do you want him to be? And then what do you have to do to get there, to help him get there, right? And I think it's the same thing with the conservative movement. Like, what do we want to be? What do we want it to be? 
And I know if you're here at the blaze, I know that you want it to be centered on truth. And you want to be confident and compassionate. I know that. That's why we're here. That's, that's the blaze audience. And I also think the blaze audience, you understand that it's about principles, not personalities. I stole that one from Matt Walsh. It's about principles, not personalities. Always remember that as well. Slater Radio on Twitter, one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders. I want to tell a quick story about a uh, one of the seven sages of Greece. His name is uh, Salone. Salone uh, of Athens. He's actually all over the U.S. Capitol, the Capitol building in Congress. So in, in the House chamber, there's 23 bas-reliefs. There's 23 um, pictures of people throughout history uh, all around the, the House chamber. And one of them is Salone. And, and uh, there's also a giant statue of him in the Library of Congress because he was the, well, this, the first written law code in Athens was written by a guy named Draco, and they were super severe, like crazy, crazy, super severe laws. And this is where we get the word draconian, right? So if something's very severe, it's a draconian, and that's where it gets. So Salon was the second person. He, he rewrote the laws in Athens, and they lasted for about a thousand years. So he wrote, rewrote all the laws and then handed them over and said, I'm out of here. He, he just didn't want to deal with people asking him questions or complaining or whatever. So he left for 10 years and he traveled all over the place. And he goes to uh, a place named Lydia. It would be today, it'd be Turkey, basically. And he met the king. Now, the king was the richest king in the world at the time, the king of Lydia. And he was high on the hog and all the rest. And he was asking Salome, who's the happiest man in the world? Of course, expecting for him to say, well, why you are king. And Salon goes, well, uh, there's at least three people happier than you. <laughs> and the king's like, why? What are you talking about? Who can be happier than me? And he listed off all the things he owns and the places he controls and all the rest. And Salon said, well, there's this one guy back home who uh, had uh, amazing family. He had great kids, really well behaved. He he met all and he, and he knew all of his grandchildren. And then he died in battle in a heroic way defending his country. His name was uh, Tellus. And then there are these two brothers and they were traveling with their mother to uh, a festival and and the the cart they were in was pulled by an oxen and then the oxen died. So the two brothers pulled the cart with their mom in it for 5 miles all the way to the festival. And the king's like, what are you talking about? Like, those, <laughs> How are those people happier than me? And Salon's like, oh, the fortune you have that you're resting your happiness on, that's all fickle. That's, that's not going to last. And the king was outraged and all the rest. And then I think within the year, his, the king's son died accidentally. His wife committed suicide and he lost his empire to the Persians. So that was it. So Salon was a pretty baller guy. And his main known line is nothing in excess. 
That's his famous line, nothing in excess. I will end with this quote right here. Charles Wagner, 1903, he wrote a book called The Simple Life. And he said, when one passes in review the individual causes that disturb and complicate our life. So if we look at the things that are going on in our life that cause us stress, they all lead back to one general cause, which is this, the confusion of the secondary with the essential. Material comfort, education, liberty, these things constitute the frame of the picture. But the frame no more makes the picture than the uniform, the soldier. I love that, right? Like you take a guy, you put him in a military uniform. That doesn't make him a soldier. It's not that simple. You make the man the soldier, then you give him a uniform. So here he says, uh, here the picture, the picture. So the frame is stuff. The picture is man. And man with the most imitable, it's uh, unique, unique possession, namely his character and his will. And while we've been elaborating and garnishing the frame, we've forgotten, neglected, disfigured the picture. We must search out, set free, restore to honor the true life, assign things to their proper places, and remember that the center of human progress is moral growth. What good is a lamp? Or what is a good lamp? It is not the most elaborate, the finest wrought, that of the most precious metal. A good lamp is a lamp that gives good light. And so also we are men and citizens, not by the number of our goods and pleasures we procure for ourselves, nor because of the honors and independence we enjoy, but by virtue of the strength of our moral fiber. And this is not a truth of today, but a truth of all times. So that's uh, Charles Wagner, 1903, book's called The Simple Life. And then he goes on and talks about the importance of simplicity. How about it's not about material things even, um, you know, it's not even like, it's not even about simplicity of material things. It's simplicity about a state of mind. So I don't know. Are you like the King of Lydia, right? The King of Turkey thinking you're happy because you got all these things. Or are you wise like Salone saying, no, 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 raising a family, serving your mother, fighting for your country. That's what brings true happiness. Are you living a complicated life? A life focusing on the secondary, which would be the frame of the picture, and not the essential picture itself. I think about these things all the time. If, if, if I'm not doing it right, oh, it's just a matter of time before I veer off into the ditch. Just a matter of time. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. We'll get to some politics coming up next. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Centers of America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I hope you're having a great Saturday. So last point on uh, on Milo, but again, it's not really uh, about Milo. I think this is the, the clearest articulation of where most conservatives fit when it comes to fighting the machine. 
Well, first of all, we got to define that. What is the machine? I, I think the machine is the control, the influence, the size and power that progressives have in our culture. There's a, oh gosh, who owns this blog? Uh, the Ringer. It's called The Ringer. It's a sports blog. Um, I forget his name. It'll come to me in a second. Um, there's a post on that blog about how sports writing has become a liberal profession. My brother, about six months ago, swore off ESPN because of all of its social justiness. <laughs> Not in like a, I'm boycotting it kind of way. Just like, what the heck is going on? What did... I go to the I go to the website for the score of the Yankees game, and I'm reading about some transgendered tennis player or something. Like what what is happening? I was on Deadspin just like a week or so ago, and Deadspin used to be a sports blog, and the first story was an interview that Tucker Carlson did with some Washington Post writer, and they were talking about how Tucker Carlson's the devil or something. I'm like this is a sports blog. What do we the heck is going on? All right. So I don't even know. Like what's so weird about the sports writing thing is your audience is mostly conservative. So what are you doing with the social justiness everywhere? So the point is that even in sports, progressives run pop culture on this day before the Oscars. You'll see more of that. I doubt there's going to be many people getting up there talking about conservative principles. So how do conservatives combat this? There's three ways. Reason with the machine. Replace the machine or rage against the machine. So let's break down each of these. So the first one's reason with the machine. So these are conservatives who join these elite institutions, who join the machine. Uh, usually either at universities, you'll have a couple token professors or, or uh, different media spaces. Uh, let me quote David French, who came up with these, these three categories. He says, if you, if you want to join the machine, or excuse me, reason with the machine, then the path is narrow. And few can walk down that road. And there's this delicate dance where you need to express yourself enough to maintain your voice, but not so much that you trigger an overwhelming eternal internal backlash. So I think an example of this would be uh, someone who I admire and I like very much, Hugh Hewitt. Right, Hugh Hewitt, conservative, strong conservative, on CNN. He's like the token conservative on CNN. All right, so he's trying to reason with the machine. He's inside it doing the best he can to maintain a voice, but not be too crazy, right? Too conservative. You're going to get kicked out. So he's, he's within it trying to reason with the machine. Okay. That's number one. Then you got uh, conservatives who try to replace the machine. So this is when you create a parallel institution to the machine. So uh, the blaze is a perfect example of that, right? Glenn's like, I'm out. I'm going to make up my own, right? So we have the blaze radio TV blaze.com. All of that is a perfect example of replacing the machine. You also see a lot more Christian filmmaking and it's getting better and better every single year, higher quality and all the rest. And that's to, it's not operating in the Hollywood world. It's, it's operating parallel to it. So it's seeking to replace the machine. Third category, you have rage against the machine. And I'll quote from Mr. French. This is the folk hero, right? It lives, eats and breathes pure defiance. It picks fights with the left for the purpose of creating a predictable overreaction, and then it uses that overreaction to prove its critique. Its lifeblood is its fighting spirit. Its oxygen is liberal fury. This is Milo's world. This is Ann Coulter's world. And yes, this is Donald Trump's world. 
Now, if you want to live in the rage against the machine world, it's a pretty simple process. So first you use the uh, replace the machine institutions to gain a following. Right? So you got your own little bit of following. And then it grows and grows, and it's big enough where the mainstream media takes notice. So they'll do a story on you. So let's just use Milo as an example. So Milo, let's say for every 10 people who hear Milo talk, nine of them are totally, completely outraged and think he's the worst person in the world. And one person's like, hmm, that, I like this. This makes sense, or I like him, or whatever. When he goes on ABC News or even Fox News, but even like more mainstream, 100,000 people may watch him. And yeah, 90,000 may be like, he's the worst person in the world. But 10,000 are like, I love this guy. So he gains more followers and keeps doing more outrageous things and then speaks on college campuses and the very people he's criticizing burn it to the ground, right? So if you keep doing that cycle over and over again, pretty soon you got your own industry. You've got your own brand that you've created. So that's rage against the machine. That's how that works. Now, all three are, are needed in varying degrees, right? You kind of... They all got their, I'll put it like this. They all have their pluses and minuses. So minuses are, if you're in the reason with the machine, so if you're in the Hugh Hewitt world, then uh, at least on in CNN, you're just a drop in the ocean. And, and, and you can become overcome with futility and despair. If you're replacing the machine, well, we tend to get the polarizing things, right? You tend to get progressives who go to Huffington Post. You get conservatives who go to the blaze and no one's really talking to each other. That can be a problem with the replacing the machine. And then the rage against the machine, it turns into hucksterism and shock for the sake of shock and stuff like that. This is where you get headlines and it's not just conservatives doing this too. I guess you get people like, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? John Oliver or whatever. Like, that's where you get headlines like John Oliver utterly destroys Trump. It's like stuff like that. It's like I've, I've stopped clicking on any headline that has the word destroys in it. I said, I have no interest in anything that just anyone or anything that destroys another person or thing. Like, I, like what is that? And it's always disappointing, right? It's just stupid clickbait. Daughter utterly destroys, completely destroys. Come on. So David French ends with this. He says, conservatives need to fight. But we must fight with honor to advance honorable goals. Otherwise, the culture war will be fought over ruins. With cultural rubble, the victor's only spoils. So if we do the win at all costs, burn it to the ground uh, for culture, then, yeah, we win maybe at the end, but win what? Now, I want to add a fourth. The fourth option. So what do we got? We got reason with machine, replace the machine, rage against the machine. Uh, Now, I don't have an R one for this, but I'm going to go with abort the machine. Abort it. I'm out. I quit. Friend of mine. Actually, I think this is the guy who introduced me to Milo Yiannopoulos for the first time a year or so ago. Hey, Slater, you ever heard of this guy? This is what he, he texted me. He texted me a, like five texts this long, right? So he's going to be like a whole thing. But it ends with this. He says, it's very interesting to me how everyone, including myself, reacted. Right? This is about the whole Milo controversy. This, I think, is another example of how we react quickly and rationalize after, right? He was talking about the segments we've done before where we come to judgments this fast and then everything from that point forward, we just try to prove ourselves right. That's how we all work. Anyway, this is why I want to unplug from it all more and more. 
I don't want to find myself supporting someone I shouldn't. For all I know, Milo has assaulted someone or he's a victim with deep scars. I don't know. I need to unplug and focus on my own planks. I really hope that in three months, I don't know what Milo is doing or the latest Lena Dunham outrage or whatever else it is. I love that. I think that's the best reaction to this. Abort the machine. I'm out. I'm not, I'm not doing fight the culture war, the idea war, you know, the, the loving your neighbor war, do all that one person at a time. I, I don't even know if the machine is necessary. I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out. I just know I'm out. I'm done. Sort of like I'm done with like John Oliver destroys. I'm like, no, no, stop. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm done with the whole thing. I'm out. I don't want to know what Milo's doing. I don't know what I want to know what Lena Dunham outrage. I don't, I don't care what Beyonce's latest thing is. I'm out. You're going to hear tonight or tomorrow night the, the Oscars and someone's going to say this and the other person. I'm just, I, I don't care. I'm out. Abort the machine. one 888 It's just exhausting and, and doesn't matter. one 888 I want to tell a story coming up next about, um, about our human nature, especially for people who who uh, have characterized themselves and their group and their movement uh, of caring and compassion. Uh, And then one thing changes and then suddenly they're not that anymore. And this is just our human nature. We'll talk about that next Slater radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. So this is a, uh, a nice story of human nature. It's actually a terrible story of human nature, but it's a good example of human nature. So Candace Wiggins, have you ever heard of this name before? She uh, went to high school. She grew up here in San Diego. Um, number three pick out of Stanford, 2008, uh, to the WNBA. She won a championship with the Minnesota team, which everyone knows is called the Lynx, the Minnesota Lynx. So she was just inducted this the other day in the uh, San Diego Hall of Champions. And this is what she said. She said, it wasn't like my dreams came true in the WNBA. It wasn't, wasn't like my dreams came true in the WNBA. It was quite the opposite. She said she was attacked and harassed from day one of joining the league. Why? Quote, me being heterosexual and straight. And being vocal in my identity as a straight woman was huge. I would say 98% of the women in the WNBA are gay women. It was a conformist type of place. There was a whole different set of rules that the other players could apply. Huh. So she got attacked, ridiculed, mocked for being straight. Remember that. I'll get back to it in a second. I want to read this article here. This is from uh, this is in the New York Post. A gay man wrote it. He wrote an article about or, or, uh, in Out Magazine about Milo. Milo keeps coming up today. It was a straight down the middle article. It wasn't positive. wasn't negative. No stance, just 
here he is. Here's Milo. This is an expose about him. And he said when he wrote it, there was a massive backlash against him. He said, quote, after the story posted online, I woke up to more than 100 Twitter notifications on my iPhone. Trolls were calling me a Nazi. Death threats rolled in. And a joke photo, but it doesn't matter. Most concerningly, disconcertingly, it wasn't just strangers voicing radical discontent. Personal friends of mine, men in their 60s who had been my longtime mentors were coming at me. They wrote on Facebook that the story was irresponsible and dangerous. A dozen or so people unfriended me. So I laid low for a week or so. Finally, I decided to go out to my local gay bar in Williamsburg, uh, where I've been a regular for 11 years. I ordered a drink, but nothing felt the same. Half the place, people with whom I've shared many laughs, seemed to be giving me the cold shoulder. Upon seeing me, a friend who normally greets me with a hug and a kiss pivoted and turned away. Frostiness spread far beyond the bar, too. My best friend, with whom I typically hung out with multiple times per week, was suddenly perpetually unavailable. Finally, on Christmas Eve, he sent me a long text calling me a monster, asking where my heart and soul went, and saying that all of our other friends are laughing at me. I realized for the first time in my adult life, I was outside of the liberal bubble and looking in. What I saw was ugly, lockstep, incurious and mean-spirited. So he goes on to say that because of that, he started listening to more conservative positions on issues and it's all making more sense to him now. And he wrote the article because he's hoping that New Yorkers can be as open-minded about his new status as a conservative as New Yorkers were about his sexual orientation. Unlikely. And, and here's why. Humans, or more accurately, packs of humans, bond together and I don't want to say rebel. That's not the right word. Uh, packs of humans join together and attack other packs of humans. It's just how it goes. <laughs> always has, always will. So take a uh, minority group, right? A group of victims. We'll say gay women. Now, when they're the minority they uh, present themselves as loving, uh, loving, uh, caring, compassionate victims. Victims of the sexist bigots of society. That's when they're the minority victims. But then when they join together in the WNBA and they find themselves in the majority, they're not so loving, caring, or compassionate anymore towards other people who are different towards people who are now in the minority. Interesting. Does that make sense? So that the, the dynamics change there, right? So let's just, let's just take one, one gay woman in the WNBA goes her whole life, minority victim, attacked, abused, harassed, criticized, made out to be an, an other because of her, uh, sexual orientation goes to the WNBA suddenly finds herself in the majority now. So all these people who live that exact same life are now the majority and they find Candace Wiggins who is straight and they attack, ridicule, mock, abuse her. Well, hold on. I thought when, when you were the victim, you were so caring, compassionate, loving, why can't we all get along, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
and now suddenly you're in the majority and now you're just as bad as the other majority that you criticized when you were in the minority. See how that works? Inside us all is a, a dark place. And inside that dark place is a desire to attack people in different groups. The thing is we don't until we outnumber them. So you have gay women who have been othered their entire life, but when they're in the majority now, then they can attack the minority. Same with gay people in New York, right? Gay people have been out, they've been othered their entire life. But once they're in the majority, and now they're in, in this case, obviously gay people are not the majority. Gay people are about 2% of the population, but you know, in their group, right? In that gay bar or whatever, all right? There's a safe place where they feel more powerful. Now they're the pack and they other a different minority. In this case, a conservative guy, right? It's in all of us. No one's above it. No group of people is holier than thou. There's no, oh, it's only, and no, no group of person, people are worse than others either, right? It's just humans. If anything, I do think it shows how similar we all are, that we would all, if we were, if we're in the minority, we are all capable of being victims. And if we are in the majority, we're all capable of being the victimizers. It's the story of Matthew 18. Right, servant owed a, whatever it doesn't say exactly, but a million dollars to the king. Right, and the king wants the money. The king says, "Hey, where's my money? You got to give it to me." And the servant's like, "I don't have a million bucks." So the king, all right, he's like, all right, "I forgive you, I forgive your debt. You're free to go. It's all good." So the servant gets home, and turns out there's someone there who owes him a thousand bucks. And the servant's like, "Oh, you owe me the money. Give me the money right now." And the guy's like, "I can't pay." He's like, "Oh, you're a horrible person." Throws him in jail, debtor's prison, all the rest, and uh, you know, beats him until he gives him the money back. And then the king calls that guy back in and says, "Dude, what's the deal?" I forgave you a million dollars in debt. You owed me a million bucks. And then you go and, and I forgive you of that. And then you go and you, this other guy owes you a thousand bucks and you don't forgive him that? You don't extend that mercy to, to someone else? What the heck is wrong with you? So the king throws him in jail until he can pay back the million bucks. You would think people who have been othered and victimized would show extra compassion to different groups of people. But that's just not how humans work. Uh, unless, unless you're aware of it and can rise above it. Tabitha just sent me a tweet. Tribal mentality. That's exactly what that is. And the only way to overcome it is to, well, honestly, find similarities between you and the other people. I don't just focus on the other thing, but we're supposed to only focus on our diversity and things that make us different. But you find things that you have in common with other people. Focus on those and then be aware of our tribal disorders that are in each of us. And rise above it. No good comes from it. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, how are you? Um, I have we. I, I don't. I, I apologize. I should have gotten an update on this story before I, uh, I first saw it a couple days ago because it can't be real. I might have. Uh, should probably do a little update on this one. So this is out of Massachusetts. An elementary school started High Five Friday. 
Did you hear this? High five Friday. It sounds like fun. Got a couple of police officers standing out front of the school outside of the front door. I've seen a couple of pictures. And some are in uniform. One guy's, one of the officers is wearing khaki pants and a jacket, right? So it's all pretty low key. And they're standing out the side of the front door and, and the elementary school kids walk in and they give a high five to each other. High five Friday. Started in December. Seems pretty cool. Well, they canceled it. They canceled it because uh, parents, which means usually means one parent, complained. So they had a school meeting and then they had a public meeting. And according to the police chief, quote, people were uh, specifically concerned about kids of color, undocumented children or any children who may have had negative experiences with the police. So they canceled the program. So hold on though. As, as I'm reading this again, people were specifically concerned about kids of color and undocumented children. That to me, and maybe this is just worded improperly. I don't know. I wasn't at the meeting, but that to me says that's like, that's, this is, this seems like virtue signaling. It'd be one thing if a black parent said, my kid is scared of police officers and this is bad. This program is bad. Or my kid, I, I'm an illegal immigrant or whatever, and my kids don't. It's not that, but it seems like it's like probably white parents being like, whoa, whoa, police officers. Pretty sure black kids are going to be scared of them. Pretty sure undocumented kids are going to be scared of these police officers. We better not have them, right? This sounds like one giant exercise in virtue signaling. The point of the program, parents, is to have positive interactions with the police. So if there have been negative stereotypes passed down to these kids, or if if there were negative interactions in the past, the idea of High Five Friday is for the kids to grow up saying, oh yeah, I know, uh, I know Officer Joe, I see him every Friday, he always smiles at me, gives me a high five, right? It's to improve interactions between uh, police and the people in the town. So don't impose on these kids your own deficiencies, your own wounds, your own problems. Help these kids and the current police department grow stronger together. I want to play this clip here. This is uh, an interview that was done a couple of years ago with James Earl Jones. So this is a clip of uh, James Earl Jones on the Tavis Smiley Show. Um, they're talking about the Tea Party. So this must have been around 2008, 2009. And... They're talking about how racist the Tea Party is. So look past that part, um, and, and we'll analyze this clip right here. 1384. Ought to be one mm. my, by my grandmother. My grandmother was part Cherokee. Absolutely. I think I figured out uh, the Tea Party. I, I, I think I, I, I do understand racism because I was taught to be one mm. my, by my grandmother. My grandmother was part Cherokee, Chokti Indian, part black. She hated everybody. Mm. She taught all of her children and grandchildren to be racist, to hate white people, mm. and to distrust black people. Well, who, who does she love then? Nobody. Nobody at all. But but uh, that allowed me to figure it out for myself. Oh. And I think I, I, I know what racism is better than anybody who's ever been oh. a racist. And, and, hmm. Different interview on BBC. He said, I'd go to school with white kids and Indian kids. I knew they weren't the devils that my grandma said they were. I had to start thinking for myself and I had to start understanding the extent to which she was right too. 
But now I can live in the shoes of racists. When I hear about racists, I know exactly what they're feeling. And I'll say, I'm going to allow myself to feel that just for the heck of it. So I know what they're going through. I wonder how many people like James Earl Jones's uh, grandma are raising their kids to have the same racist ideas that, that they had. This is how, and this could be racist, could be white parents teaching about how race, you know, how terrible black people are. This can be black people telling their kids how terrible the police are, whatever. This is how trauma works. And this is why we talked so frequently recently about how to change people's mind, right? So let's say you meet someone who hates police, just has this, this was just intense hatred of police officers. It's for a reason. There's a reason. Either they had a bad experience or someone they know had a bad experience and they heard stories. There's like some reason why they hate police and they've, they've had that, they took that bad experience and they just projected it on all police officers. But I think the worst thing of all is to then take that and teach that to your kids. So the hatred just then continues on, even when it's completely unfounded. It's high five Friday for the love of Pete. So here we have parents teaching kids to hate police officers at their school. And now the kids are like, well, where are the police officers? Oh, well, kids, you know, <laughs> you know, they, they have to go through this whole thing. Well, if you're black or if you're undocumented, if you're an illegal immigrant ch- child, then then you're scared of police. And the kids are like, are we? Yes, you have. You should be. All right, so we have parents projecting their own fears of police officers on their kids. Like, what a shame. What the heck is going on? All right, I want to segue from that into this because I think these two things are related. Victor David Hansen, Davis Hansen, um, one of my one of my favorite commentators. He's a professor at uh, Stanford now, I think. He wrote an article the other day about how identity politics is on its way out. So we're reaching the end of identity politics, and of course, this is what the left traffics in right now. Right, so this is uh, the idea of the black vote, right, and the Hispanic vote and the gay vote, identity politics. You must vote for this person. Or, you know, it's, this is a Madeleine Albright for the love of Pete saying at a Clinton rally, "There's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women, essentially who don't vote for Hillary Clinton. Special place in hell, right? So you have to vote for Hillary because you're a woman. That that whole thing. So he says identity politics is going away. Why? Couple of reasons. Uh, I'll focus on three. First, intermarriage and and, uh, integration. 15% of all marriages are interracial. Do you know that? 15%. And the rates are highest for Asians and Latinos. 40% of Asian women marry someone from a different race. 40%. 25% of black men do. And 25% of all Latinos. So give a couple more years of this, generation or two most, like there is no more racial solidarity, right? I mean, what, what does that mean? It's it's racial solidarity is a lot harder when people are of mixed or a mixture of races, right? Like, or what does it mean to be black anymore? What does it mean to be Hispanic? What does it mean to be Asian? Like after a while, nothing. <laughs> We're all just whatever. It doesn't even. There is no racial groups like that anymore so that's number one uh number two even among groups 
Cubans and Mexicans don't have a lot in common. Right? You take a Cuban person and a Mexican, like why why would why would they have anything in common? So, I mean, like really think about that for a second. Why if you take someone from Mexico, someone someone first generation in America, right? Uh, so they're from Mexico. They come to America, give birth, right? There you have an American kid. Same thing. Cuban American or Cuban person comes to Mexico, has a kid, Ted Cruz. Right? Those two kids, one whose family's from Mexico, one's from Cuban, Cuba. What, like, what do they, what do their, what do their Hispanicness have in common? Hispanic only means that the the country they come from, they speak Spanish. So that's it. That's all. They, so why like Hispanics, the Hispanic vote, like what? Hmong Americans, what do they have in common with Japanese Americans? Nothing. So these broad ethnic identities, they don't even make sense. And the more that just more time goes on, the less and less sense it will ever make. And then eventually it just won't even be a thing anymore. Like the German vote, right? That's not a thing anymore. It used to be the German vote. So I'm half German, I guess. And, Irish and something, I don't know. But mostly German. Our name used to be Schrader. Uh, before the uh, whatever, great, great, great grandparents came to America, Schrader. So there's no German vote anymore. And I think after a while, there won't be a Hispanic vote. There, won't, there, is, there already isn't an Asian vote. That's not a thing for different reasons that we could talk about another day. But there's no, I don't think there'll be a, Span, a Hispanic vote much longer. It doesn't make any sense. And then if Victor Davis Hanson's right, a couple more generations, and there won't even be a black vote anymore because that won't even make any sense. But here's the... I got to take a break here. I'll come back with the third one. The third one's the big one for me. I think this is the one that makes the uh, the biggest difference. Again, why identity politics... No, this won't be tomorrow. There'll be a few more elections where it's still a thing, but not forever. I don't think it'll be here uh, to stay. And that's a good thing. one 888 I'll give you the third reason why next. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Slater, because I was talking about why identity politics won't be around for much longer. I don't know. I don't know when this ends, but a generation max, like one full generation. I don't even know what a generation is. What's that? Like 15 years, 20 years. I think that's probably about right. So Victor Davis Hanson, Professor Hanson gives a couple of reasons. I like these three. First, the amount of intermarriage going on right now. Uh, about 15% of all marriages are interracial. So after a while, like, what does it even mean to be like, are you Hispanic? Are you a, like, what does that doesn't mean? Anything. Second people within the Hispanic group don't like, what do they have in common? And even like black, like if you're from Africa or from the Caribbean or from Atlanta, like what, just cause your skin color is black, you're black, the black vote, like the, the whole thing's stupid. And I think people will wise up to it after a while, but here's the big one. Privilege, the key progressive word of the uh, last year or so privilege. Isn't about race anymore. It's not, uh, Will Smith's kids 
have more privilege than a white kid from West Virginia, right? You're going to see black people at the Oscars tonight. Their children, they and their children are more privileged than most anyone watching the Oscars. Privilege doesn't cut across racial lines. It's class lines. That's the bigger dividing factor. And it's funny that we're still, and this is why, again, why I think it's this whole identity politics thing is on its way out. Because there's such a focus on class these days, right? Income inequality and all that stuff. I I think eventually people are just going to cling to this one more. Now, I don't think this is appropriate either. There's no, let, let me finish this thought. We'll come back around. So, Let me quote Professor Hansen. When activist Michael Eric Dyson calls for blanket reparations for slavery, his argument does not resonate with an unemployed working class youth from Kentucky who was born more than 30 years after the emergence of affirmative action and enjoys a fraction of Dyson's own income, net worth, and cultural opportunities. I was listening to the Adam Carolla podcast a while ago. It was right after the election. And there was a guy, I forget his name. He's from PBS. He has a couple shows, podcasts, lives in New York City. His wife was like the is is the vice mayor of Oakland or something like pretty high up, like entertainment, politics. Like they're pretty privileged. And they're talking about how you know difficult life is for black people in America, whatever. And it's like, dude, your kids have way more privilege than my kids because of the positions of authority and, and that, that you're in and power that you're in right now. So I don't know how much longer a politician can hang their hat on identity politics when identities are becoming more and more fractured and people just don't identify with large groups anymore. And then, of course, the bigger thing, like I said, is is class, your income. If you're a, a kid in an upper class black family, you're supposed to identify politically with a black person in Compton? Like why what do you why 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 would why would you just like that the skin just cuz you have the same skin color like who you're not totally different worlds. So the whole thing's silly and I think people are just going to I think they're just going to wise up after a while. Let's hope anyway. 1888-933-93 1888-933-93 Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to come back and I got a really good example here of people hallucinating and making stuff up and coming up with their own reality had a really fascinating call on my local show the other day. And someone said Slater, you know, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, progressives, we don't even agree on the same core principles anymore. And you've maybe thought that before or heard that before. And that's totally true, but I want to go another step further. I don't even think we agree on reality anymore. We can't even agree on this on the same thing in front of us, whether this is real or like what what this is. So forget about agreeing on core principles. Forget about policy. We're never going to agree on policy if we can't even agree on the very first, most simple, basic, fundamental step, and that is reality. <laughs> so why can't we agree on reality? And it's because people just make stuff up all the time. People make up their own reality, and I don't mean I'm not even talking about the media. I'm talking about ourselves and our brains. We make up our own reality. We tell ourselves stories about what's really going on. Why? How? We'll talk about that next. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. You said this is America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. One more hour. How can this show flies by every, uh, every Saturday? So we've been talking a lot. I've been doing a lot of research on this about how, well, generally how we come to conclusions about things. Because I want to know why people make certain arguments. There's a reason why. So I've been doing a lot of research on that. Um, and we're going to share a little more as, as the weeks go on each week. But now I want to talk about how people make up their own reality. So in this hierarchy of, I guess, how we communicate, we have reality at the top. This is the most important thing, reality. Below that, we have principle. And then below that, policy. Now, we used to agree on reality, and then we'd have, uh, you know, we'd agree on principle, but we'd have disagreements on policy, right? And that's okay. That makes sense. So let me give you an example. So um, I'll give an economic example. This is easy to understand. So we all used to agree, almost everyone in America would agree with the economic principle that low taxes result in economic growth, right? So everyone agrees that Democrats, Republicans, we all agree that low taxes result in economic growth, but we would have a disagreement on the policy, right? The specifics of that. So Republicans would say, I want a one, this is when the income tax first started. We want a 1% income tax and Democrats would be like, no, we want it to be 3%, but no Democrats said they wanted it 80%. Right, Because we agree that low taxes result in economic growth. We all want economic growth. Let's keep the taxes as low as, as possible. So, we, But we'd have a disagreement on policy, and that's fine. And then we'd compromise and say, okay, 2%. Okay? I had a caller on my local show the other day say, Slater, you know, it's so crazy today. Progressives and conservatives, we don't even agree on core principles anymore. And that's totally true. I mean, now we have Democrats and we have people in this country who think that higher taxes result in economic growth. So if I think low taxes, if I have the economic principle that low taxes result in economic growth and you have the economic principle that high taxes result in economic growth, how are we ever going to agree on a policy? You can't compromise with that. There's no compromising. You think higher, the better. So what are we going to do? It doesn't work. We can do immigration. I want to talk about some border stuff coming up if we have time. Everyone used to agree on at least the principle, like like the, the concept of a sovereign nation, right? And a secure nation. And we disagree on policy. Like, well, how do we keep our nation safe? Now, we, we don't even agree on that principle of, of sovereign nationhood. Some people want no borders. So how do we have a conversation with that? Okay, so that's that's where we've we've been for a while now, where we just disagree on core principles. I want to go a step further, though. I don't even think we agree on reality anymore. 
right? That's like, that's the most important fundamental thing. So forget about not agreeing on core principles. We don't even agree on reality. And we make up our own reality based on whatever we want. I got an email the other day. Let me pull this up. A Facebook message from someone. Long time listener. Okay, this is what he said. This is on Wednesday. He said, Slater, this man, and he sent me a picture. He sent me a picture of a guy dead laying on the sidewalk. Slater, this man committed suicide in Tijuana soon after being deported. By the way, real quick timeout. If you want to sound like uh, like you're a San Diegan, it's not Tijuana. Uh, growing up, I always thought it was Tijuana. It's Tijuana. And when I first moved here, I'm like, Tijuana, down the street. And they're like, ah, it's Tijuana. Anyway, this man committed suicide in Tijuana soon after being deported. He jumped off a bridge. He was a father of three. I know this story may not make national news, but these kinds of stories will be highlighted by some media outlets. And he linked to some post from a, a Tijuana newspaper. Nobody's for keeping violent criminals in the country. However, I hope more compassion is shown towards these people moving forward. So this person, his name's Edgar, totally made up a story about this guy. So I'm going to assume, I'm gonna, we're going to move forward with the assumption for the sake of this conversation, that this man did in fact jump off a bridge and commit suicide. Okay, we're going to assume, because that's not even necessarily true, we don't know. But we're going to go with that, just so we can even move forward. So let's agree that he jumped off a bridge, committed suicide in Tijuana. How do you know anything else about this guy? How do you know it was because he was deported? And, and so, so look, look at this. So Edgar, someone who wants open borders, basically, right? He's creating this, this movie in his head about this guy, right? He was a father of three. Oh, he was an amazing, oh, incredible father. Loved his children so much. They loved him. And he was a great man. This person jumped off the bridge and killed himself. A great man. He he works hard for his kids. Oh, he has three jobs. Do you know that three jobs works the late shift, but still finds time to spend with his kids. He lost all of his jobs. The economy he wanted is just not going good. So he lost all of his jobs. So he just wanted to come to America to live the American dream his whole life since he was a little boy. He's been wanting to come to America and live this dream. And he tried to get to America the legal way and it just didn't happen. So he, he came across the border and, and he got deported. And he said, please, please let me stay in America. I love this country. I'll do anything for this country. And we were so uncompassionate. We were so rude, so awful to this man that when we deported him back to Tijuana, he could think of nothing else to do other than to jump off a bridge. And it's your fault, America. It's your fault, President Trump. It's your fault, conservatives, for not being a compassionate people. Right? Totally made up. Edgar has no idea that that's what this guy's story is. No clue whatsoever. But because he wants to believe, he wants to prove that we are not compassionate, he will make up a story about this guy on the fly about what a wonderful person he is and what a terrible person you are. We have no clue what this guy's story is. He could be a horrible person. He could be a drug dealer. He could be a gang member. He could have come to America and committed crimes and then we deported him. We have no clue. No one knows. Literally no one knows. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what his deal is, but either does Edgar. That's the point. 
But Edwin is going to assume the, war, the, the absolute best about this guy. The absolute best. And how could you, America, just be such lacking in compassion that you wouldn't accept this man? Maybe he was going to commit suicide anyway. Maybe he was going to come to America and murder 100 people. I don't know. I have no clue. But you can't assume whatever story Edgar's making up either. Do you know what I'm saying? They're just making, we're just making up reality. So that, I mean, that's my point here about reality. We can't even agree on reality when everyone's just making up their own stories in their heads. All right, let me give you another example of making up your own reality. This is a terrible quality of a clip. I apologize. This is the best I could find, though. Uh, so I hope you can hear it okay. This is President Trump when he was a candidate at one of his campaign rallies. The game is, what is the racist thing that he's saying here? Pick out the racist sentence. 'm the quality's so terrible there but but if you could hear that, did you hear the racist thing? Of course not uh the line the racist line is quote, "We're the people who built this country and made this country great now, if you heard that like me uh you you thought uh who's he talking about law abiding people right people who share American values of hard work, decency, playing by the rules like we're the people who built this country that's what that's what he was talking about but if you have experienced trauma, real or imaginary, and you believe that slavery built this country, that black people built this country, well, white people built it, but on the blacks, on the, on the backs of slavery, then you heard Donald Trump say something very different there, and you projected on him your own reality. Hence this question to uh, White House spokesperson Sean Spicer by a reporter, 1392. Okay, now what did the president uh, gain from his tour today? Um, you talked about where he visited, uh, the, exhibits, the exhibits that he visited. Did he also visit slavery? And the reason why I'm uh, asking this is because when he was candidate Trump, he said things like, you know, we made this country, meaning... Uh, white America, not necessarily black. Did he gain? Well, well, I don't know why you would say that. What do you mean? No, no, no. He said that. I heard him say that. Well, no, no. But look, the answer to your question is right. One of the first exhibits okay, that he did. So the lady that that reporter heard him say that white America built this country. She heard it. And Sean Spice was like, "What are you talking? No, no. I heard it. I heard him say that white America built this country. Never happened. She completely made that up in her brain. She made up that reality. So." Let's say we want to have, uh, we want to create policy. Now, this is like a thing that this isn't the best example because there's no policy that comes from this. But let's say we wanted to come to a core principle, me and and that woman right there. We let's sorry, let's say it again. Me and this woman, let's say we're supposed to come to a policy together. Okay, all right. Well, if we're going to come to a policy, we have to agree on core principles. How can we agree on core principles? If we hear that speech from Donald Trump and hear completely different things, 
We don't even agree on reality. Now, it's one thing if you hear a speech or something and you miss part of it, right? Or, you know, you, you missed a word here or whatever. But it's a whole nother level of delusion if you're adding words, right? Isn't it fascinating how our brains work like that? We can lie to ourselves so much about what we hear and what we see. This woman heard a speech and added a word to it. White America. He didn't say white America. Not at all. So we add a word and then get mad at it. So we make up our own reality and then get mad at it. How funny. And this woman's so passionate about it that she had to ask the White House spokesperson about it. He didn't say it. Donald Trump didn't say it. She heard it, though. She heard it. I believe she heard it. He didn't say it, but she heard it. That's the power of lying to ourselves and making up our own reality. Fascinating, fascinating. I, I just think it's, it's wild. Uh, so how do we talk to each other if we can't even agree on what is real? All right, we'll do a follow. We'll do the, uh, the closing um, conclusion of this next. 1-800-933-93. Mike Slater, so the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. So we have um, reporters. There's a White House correspondent there making up hysteria in her brain. Uh, another example of, of this is the latest with transgender bathrooms. Now, this is a little different. Um, I don't know if this is hysteria, what I'm about to share here. I think this is intentionally left out. So if you have hysteria, it's 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 not um, it's not intentional. You're so wrapped up in it that you just don't even really know you're doing it. Like this woman, she heard she heard, feels like she heard Trump say white America built this country. She's not intentionally, rationally thinking like, hmm, if I say that he said white America, then I, that's like it's that's different. This is like I really think he did. I swear he did. I heard it. A little different. Maybe that's not doesn't really make that big of a difference, but. Go in the air. This is from the New York Times the other day. Um, this is intentionally left out. This is intentionally, willfully, uh, logically, from their perspective, written this way. New York Times, quote, The bathroom debate, as the controversy has become known, emerged as a major and divisive issue last March when North Carolina passed a bill barring transgender people from using bathrooms that do not match their biological sex. Okay. No, that is not how this started. That is not how this emerged. The bathroom debate did not emerge from the state of North Carolina passing a bill banning transgender people from using bathrooms. It started when Charlotte passed an ordinance out of nowhere saying that transgender people can use whatever bathroom they want. That then led to a response from the state. That said, no, you can't. It did not start from hateful Republicans in the Capitol sitting around saying, hmm, who, who should we you know, attack next? It started with progressives in Charlotte wanting to pick a fight. And if you want to go back even further than that, it really started because the gay lobby now has nothing to do. After the Supreme Court ruling, right? Gay marriage is now legal everywhere. 
the the gay lobby, the gay infrastructure looked around, the gay activists looked around and said, well, now what do we do? And they said, well, uh, transgender bathrooms. And they picked that fight in Charlotte. And then once the election was over, Charlotte, the city who voted to enact the ordinance, voted 10 nothing to repeal the ordinance. So the whole thing was a political stunt. This is no different than the war on women. 2008, George Stephanopoulos, in a debate, a presidential debate, asked Mitt Romney out of nowhere if he supports states banning contraception. Do you remember this? Governor Romney, do you think do you support states banning contraception? And Mitt Romney's response was, um, what? What are you talking about? Who? I don't, I don't know, George. Who wants to do that? What do you? Out of nowhere, that was the first shot fired in the war on women narrative. Same with the Charlotte ordinance. They picked a fight. Who was asking for transgender bathroom rights? What do you, what, 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 and then the state came in and said, whoa, 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 whoa. And then the media, of course, framed this as this giant effort of Republicans to discriminate against trans people. When it was really just like the whole, the whole point of this was to paint Republicans as bigots. Amazing. So a few, to, bring it, to bring it more recent, a few months before Obama left office, he passed a rule that said any school that receives federal funds, almost all of them, can't discriminate against people for their gender identity. Now, the law says that you can't discriminate against someone based on their gender but the law has been changed, has been rewritten, or excuse me, reinterpreted to include gender identity. So that means if you're a school that receives federal funds, again, all of them almost, then you have to let transgender boys, girls go in whatever bathroom they want. So Trump just said he's going to re- re- repeal that or rescind it. And then, of course, the headline is Trump discriminates against transgender students. We're just going back to the way it's always been before out of nowhere this fight was picked in the first place. So it's, it's all, it's, there's so much to say. There's so much made up reality. Uh, everyone's just making up their own stories about this whole thing. I'll end with this. Cause I got like 60 seconds. Millennials are pushing this. This is a millennial activist thing. And it's because millennials want their own Selma. We were raised as, uh, you know, the way we were taught was that civil rights leaders are the most incredible saviors of human history. So millennials grew up wanting our own Selma. But fighting for actual issues requires either moral consistency, so we're not going to talk about abortion, money, so we're not going to do anything about poverty, or just a lot of time. But gay rights requires none of that, right? Gay people have plenty of money. doesn't require any moral consistency on our part to be an ally, and you can just change your Twitter picture to prove you're an activist. So that takes four seconds. So it doesn't even take a lot of time. So it's the perfect cause for super lazy millennials. That was the whole gay marriage thing. But now that that battle's been won, like I said, they don't, no one knows what to do. So we just moved on to transgender people. But the whole root of this is millennials' desire to be like the freedom fighters of the civil rights era. So everything about transgender rights is framed under the umbrella of, well, it's just the same as civil rights for black people. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's totally, totally, completely different in a million different ways. But it will always be framed like that because deep down that's what millennials uh, wish they were. They're not even close to that. But that's what millennials, we wish we were. If only we could actually 
agree on a righteous cause to fight for. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater uh, We did a video on this just the other day on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Um, sort of on this general theme, I saw a headline on on uh, a PJ Media article. And PJ Media is a conservative news outlet, and they don't usually do stuff like this. But the headline is DHS, Department of Homeland Security, orders breathtaking crackdown on illegal immigration. All right. There's nothing breathtaking about it. Don't don't make things more dramatic than they need to be. I, I guess it's breathtaking in the fact that there's any sort of change in our immigration policy. I mean, that's breathtaking. But the, but the policy itself is not breathtaking. The biggest change to uh, the newest orders from Homeland Security, the, the Secretary John Kelly, is that people caught at the border will be immediately sent back. So the current policy is, believe it or not, if someone is caught at our border, and so I live in San Diego, so the border's, I don't know, probably 40 minutes from where I am right now. Uh, If someone's caught at the border, they are released in the United States and then told to come back for a hearing with an immigration judge at a later date. Okay, we've shared the story many times where we've talked to border agents where people will come across the border, wave down the border agents. So back in the day, they would try to run away from the border agents. Today, they wave to the border agents. Hey, I'm over here. Aki, aki. The border agent comes to them, picks them up, and then drops them off at the trolley station on our side of the border. And shockingly, very few of these people show up to their immigration hearing. The border agents say they're nothing but a Walmart welcoming crew. So Trump's team sat around the table and said, okay, well, before we find out what we're going to do, let's look at what we're currently doing. And there's no one who sat around that table with two brain cells of common sense said, well, this is good. Let's keep doing this. This makes a lot of sense. We're going to pick up people at the border and drop them off on the, at the trolley stop. Good night. So if you are caught coming across the border, you are now sent right back to Mexico. End of story. That shouldn't be controversial at all. So we made this Facebook video, and I hope Trump goes with this messaging. We got to go big to small. And not only do we have to do that, but we have to tell people that that's how we're doing this. We're going big to small. You are going to hear endless stories in the next few weeks of families being ripped apart from the, from each other. Oh, I read one. Do I have this article up? Um... I don't have it up, but you know what? You're, you've already heard it before, and you're going to hear so many articles like this. Families being ripped apart. Children being ripped out of the arms of their mother. Oh, my gosh. It's going to be like Trump's executive order with refugees and stuff, where newspapers will be actively soliciting people to email them stories of how they're affected by Trump's new immigration policy. And some of the stories are going to be true, and many of them will be false. Like the guy who said his mother died in Iraq because her plane was sent back when she was coming to America to seek care. When in reality, she died five days before the executive order. 
or the Muslim Olympian fencer who said she was detained for hours because of Trump's executive order because she's a Muslim, even though she has a gold medal representing this country. She was still detained for hours. Uh, but well, that ha- actually happened in December, a month and a half before Trump was even inaugurated, sworn in as president. But, but whatever, it fits the narrative, right? So a lot of the stories are going to be completely, totally false. Some fathers will be deported, I'm sure. But what those articles are not going to tell you is that that father's a known gang member and drug dealer who has committed multiple felonies. To the media, he'll be nothing but a father of the cutest eight-year-old girl you've ever seen in your life. And there'll be plenty of pictures of her and no pictures of his mug shots. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? So the media is going to characterize whatever Trump comes up with as small to big. Like we're going to be deporting students, right? No, no, no. We're going to go big to small. The left is going to characterize it small to big. They're going to say, oh, don't deport the dreamers. Don't deport people just trying to make a living, paying their taxes, ripping families apart, that whole thing. Right? They're going to characterize it as small to big, but we're going to characterize it, hopefully this is what it is, big to small. First criminals, if you've committed serious crimes, you're going to be deported. If you've murdered someone, can we all agree on this? Can we all agree that if, you, if you're an illegal immigrant and you murder someone, you should be deported? Can we all agree on that? Is that good? Okay, that's what I mean. Big to small, big to small. Okay, now let's say uh, if you're an illegal immigrant and you rape someone, is it cool if you're deported? Can we all agree on that? We want them deported? Okay, good. Now, okay, let's go. Now, next step. We're going big to small, remember? So those are the two biggest. Now we're going to go down. Let's say you're an illegal immigrant who's a known gang member. Can that person be deported? Good. Oh, awesome. That's great. Big to small. Okay, so let's do those three things first. Let's deport all the... The murderers, rapists, and gang members, good, who are illegal immigrants. Then, okay, then we'll stop the flow of people coming into the country illegally. Okay, by, well, like now stopping people and then sending them back, good, we'll stop the flow. It's great. Now we can come to the table and talk about what to do with the law-abiding people. Otherwise, a law-abiding people who are here, right? Then we can have a rational conversation. But now we can't have one because we've formed teams, right? You have progressives who are on the game on team, right? They're just on the open borders. Everyone's allowed in no order, total chaos. Just the, the, we'll call that the huddled masses team, right? So when I propose a totally common sense, hey, if an illegal immigrant comes to America and rapes someone, can we deport them? The people on that team, they have to say, like, they, they ha- they're in their corner, right? They're in their team. They're in their box. They have to say, no, we can't deport anyone. As a wall on. You're telling me you have a U.S. citizen woman who's raped by an illegal immigrant man. You think the man should go to jail, serve a couple years, and then be released back in America? You really believe that? And they're going to say, yes, he, no deportations, because that's the team they're on. So open borders trumps women's rights is what they're saying. So all I'm asking for prog- from progressives is that we just find a bit of common ground. Okay, let's agree on who should be deported. Murderers, rapists, gang members. Let's agree with that. Let's stop the flow. And then I guarantee you, progressives, I guarantee you, if you can agree to those two things, we can all come to the table and propose, and I bet you could propose, a basic path to citizenship. No, no, get up. Let me hear, hear me, hear me, hear me. Once the border's closed... And serious criminals have been deported and that whole process is up and running and everything's good. I bet most Americans, I bet most conservatives, I bet most Trump supporters 
would listen to some sort of path to citizenship. I don't know what that would look like. But we could talk about it. Right now, the path to citizenship is totally off the table unless we stop the flow of current and we deport serious criminals. Do those two things, then we can have a conversation and debate the uh, otherwise law-abiding citizen. Are you with me on that process? And I hope Trump can articulate this big to small because you're going to get, again, the media is going to totally freak out and pretend that it's small to big. No, big to small. You agree on these big things. You agree to stop the border, to close the border. And not to close it, it's just order instead of chaos. So we get some order at the border. I like that. Roll with that. Order at the border. Deport gang members, murderers, rapists. And then we can have a conversation. But you got to do those two things first. Big to small. Last point on this. If you are a white person riddled with guilt about what I just said, riddled with guilt about having strong borders and, and, and deporting certain people, don't feel guilty. Most Hispanics support ending sanctuary cities. Most Hispanics want a stronger border. Most new immigrants want a stronger border. Most new immigrants want stricter immigration policies. It's crazy. Don't feel guilty about it. Don't listen to the media say that deporting someone who just needs to cross the border is akin to Japanese internment. It's not. I'm pretty sure a plurality of Japanese Americans would not have been in support of Japanese internment during World War II. But today we have a plurality of Hispanics want, want a stronger border wall. <laughs> a plurality of Hispanics want tougher immigration rulings. Cesar Chavez, like the, the greatest hero of the, the Hispanic activists, was to the right of Trump when it comes to shutting down the border. So this isn't even a conservative position. Don't even think about it that way. This is the old globalist versus nationalist divide. But even more than that, really, I think it's just order versus chaos. I think most Americans don't mind refugees coming in, visas, immigrants, whatever. It's about order, order versus chaos. And I hope Trump frames this as an order issue. And I think most Americans will jump on board. Order at the border. And to go back to that headline, there's nothing breathtaking about this. Again, other than the fact that something's changing, but the action itself of what I just outlined, there's nothing breathtaking about that. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Slater, thanks for being here. Appreciate you uh, giving us some of your time. I just got a minute here, so uh, I'll share something kind of goofy here. I went to the doctor's the other day for our son. Uh, he's four months. It was his four month checkup. He is. Uh, he's huge. He's in the ninety one percentile for height. So the doctor, you know, checked it out and said, "Oh, he's going to be really tall. He's four months." We said, what do you mean tall? He's like, oh, yeah, over six feet. So what are you talking about? How can you possibly tell that already? How can you tell over f- for four months that he's going to be tall? So my wife said, oh, my gosh, 
when when we went to like the 30 week checkup or something when jack was in the womb the doctor measured jack's i don't know femur or whatever and said oh he's going to be tall so that was at 30 weeks or something 24 weeks 30 weeks whenever that checkup is in the womb so i just got me thinking what's the earliest you can tell that a baby is going to be tall or short isn't that wild so the doctor's you know telling us how tall Jack's going to be and and I'm I'm like I catch myself beaming with pride like like I had anything to do with like I <laughs> like I didn't make Jack tall. There's there's nothing I contributed to that. I I but I but I'm still like oh, that's my boy. Like what the heck? But then I I remembered reading a while back in Malcolm Gladwell's book uh Blink about the privilege that tall people have, right? So we have all this privilege about race. Earlier, we talked about privilege of class, uh, but no one talks about the privilege of height. So Malcolm Gladwell ran a study where he looked at all the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So the average height of a man in America is 5'9". So I'm 5'11", and my grandpa is the only tall person in our family at 6'2". So the average height is 5'9", for a person, for a guy. The average height of a CEO is six feet. Nationwide, 14% of men are six feet or taller. That's it. Only six feet or taller, only 14%. But 58% of CEOs. For men six two or taller, only 3.9% of men in the country are six two or taller, but 30% of CEOs. So Malcolm Gladwell went back to, to different studies that have been done looking at people over their lifetime. And looked at their income. So each, they've concluded that each inch of height results in another about $800 a year in salary. So if you take two people who are identical in every way, except one is six feet tall and the other is five, five, the six foot tall person makes about $5,500 a year more than the shorter person. Now, why? No one does this. No one's like, oh, I'm going to pay you more because you're tall. That's not how that works. It's all subconscious. We associate uh, leadership and strength with certain qualities. And height is one of them, right? If you're tall, you tend to command a presence and look like a leader. George Washington was 6'3". James Madison, the guy who wrote the Constitution, 5'4". Little guy. It's like 110 soaking wet. So it makes you think, if James Madison was 6'3", would he be the father of our country? Now, George Washington obviously also had the other characteristics to back it up. It wasn't just his height. That's not what I'm saying, but the 6'3 certainly adds to it. Let's do it the other way. If George Washington was 5'4", would he be the leader of our country, the father of our country? So this is how quickly we judge people, right? It goes back to our analysis of quick judgments that we make all the time. And we think like, well, who should be in charge? I don't know. He's tall. Like that's how our, <laughs> that's how our brain works. Not to mention in our society, sports are of great value. So if you're tall, you're more likely to be good at sports that we value in America. So you're more likely to, let's say, get a football scholarship. So then you, who played football in college and another applicant to a job who did not play football in college, you're identical in every way. But the guy you're interviewing with loves football. So you talk for 45 minutes about football and you get the job just because you get to hit it off because you played football in college. And it all started because you were tall. Isn't that wild? So I just think it's interesting because, you know, we talk about privilege in this country. 
and and the reason we talk about racial privilege is because that's just how we have recently grouped ourselves, right? But if we naturally divided ourselves based on tall people and short people, as opposed to black and white, for instance, then there would be all this talk of height privilege and there would be taxes on tall people to even out income disparities between high, high, tall people and short people. I don't want to give DC any ideas about it, but that's how, uh, that's how much of a difference being tall makes. How silly. But that's not even that my main point. My pain, main point is how irrational we are with the decisions we make. Other than your decision to spend some time with us today and to listen to The Blaze Radio, that is a rational, logical, well-thought-out wise decision. Facebook, search for The Mike Slater Show on the book. Slater Radio on Twitter. We can hang out all week. Until then, we will see you next Saturday. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.